I will try to be as straightforward as possible tonight. We kind of we end up in these places where I am I'm not especially an expert, um, uh, which is usually most weeks, I guess. But uh, you you feel the the pertinence of that in particular in particular when um, when you delve into areas of marriage and the wisdom it takes to make a good marriage. And I have been married going on six years, going on in a sort of loose sense, in July I'll be six years, so um, I guess in the same sense it's going on 20 years, but even further away. But yes, uh, the July, it's great though because I can, I can get it wrong and still get it right because we have two anniversaries. <laughs> July 11th and July 13th, we were married. Um, so you can ask about that sometime later. If you're interested, you don't have to be interested. Uh, so my wife and I have two uh, anniversaries to remember, and uh, if I miss the first one, I'm going to be like, ah, that was the second one. <laughs> Big surprise. Not that that ever happens. Um, so tonight we're looking, actually, it's a weird uh, transition. We've been looking at the the... The narratives and then the, the teaching bits, you know, they, they walk around and then Jesus talks for a bit. And that's just kind of the way Matthew breaks up. He walks around and he, he sort of interacts with people and then he says, hey, you know, hit the brakes, everybody. Let's, let's back up and talk about what just kind of happened, you know. And, and, and Matthew's doing this intentionally. I don't know if it all happened in this order and it's funny to think about that it didn't necessarily happen in the exact order you're reading it. And... That's all right. Matthew never really says that it does. Uh, some things definitely happen in this order, and some things are structured because he's writing a book, and this is how he wants to teach something. Uh, and we know that not everything can be in the order you're reading it because some of the books differ. And so Luke and Matthew and Mark, don't, everything doesn't always happen in the same order. Uh, so what's happening here in, in Matthew chapter 19 is that we're switching. He's just finished talking about um, Greatness in the kingdom of God, which we really slogged through over eight weeks. We talked about greatness in the kingdom of God. And it kind of is a slog because greatness comes down to the cross of Christ. And if you want to participate in this kingdom life now and really be great in this life, Jesus points at a child and says, you need a faith like this. And that comes about through death. You know, It comes about through sacrifice and belief in Jesus' sacrifice and participating in that sacrifice through the emptying of oneself is, um, is greatness in the kingdom of God. And so you get this whole section on greatness and then there's kind of a line in the sand and Jesus starts pointing towards something even even bigger than that, which is hard to imagine. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not being sort of the biggest thing. But there is this sort of overarching theme of not just this book, but every book, which is the glory of God revealed to men. And this is really where he goes. He goes from greatness, hits the brakes, and says, all right, let's talk about glory. Let's really talk about the glory of God. And so this section we're about to jump into culminates in the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, just the name given to the, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives that Jesus talks about, the end of all things. And the disciples come to him and say, hey, you know, you're telling us the temple's going to be destroyed. You're telling us death and resurrection. Is that it? Is that the end of all things? Is this soon-to-be destruction? Is the Roman government, is this the end of all things? Is this when God is going to be glorious here on earth? And Jesus says, yes, but not quite. So that's the beginning of birth pangs, and it might be a while, and it has. And so this shift happens in a really odd way. You'd think that that would, you know, oh, let's talk about glory. Let's talk about, you know, hey, maybe the transfiguration could show up here. Maybe some 
some voice from heaven. And instead, we have the Pharisees coming to test Jesus about divorce. And actually, what they're asking him is, hey, whose side are you on? This is, this is first century Jewish, well, any century of Jewish uh, religion is dialogue. You know, to them, to, to the uh, at least conservative Jew, the historic dialogue of the Talmud is the same weight as the law of Moses. It's this progressive explanation of the law that carries the same weight. And about 20 years prior to Jesus, there were two rabbis that were discussing the law of Moses, And one of them, Rabbi Hillel, took a position. And Rabbi, hmm, I should look up his name, Shammai? Yeah, Shammai disagreed with him. And Hillel said, you can divorce your wife, based on the law of Moses, for any reason. Any reason at all. If she burns your dinner, that was the example he gave, because apparently he quite liked dinner. If, If she burns your dinner... That's justification for leaving your life. That's fine. And, and you can then part with her, and you, essentially you're guiltless leaving your wife for burning your dinner. Well, Shammai disagrees. Oh, no, no, no. The only way you can leave your wife is adultery. If your wife goes off with some other guy, then you can guiltlessly leave your wife. And so the Pharisees come and they basically say, we want you to take a position, enter into this fray. Add to our knowledge. Add to the, add to the discussion. And that's great. We can just categorize you then. Oh, he's, he's a Shema. And, and it seems to be that might be part of the test. Part of the test is, to a certain sense, are you wrong about Moses? And we can point to this guy, he's just wrong. Part of it might just be enter the fray. You know, take a side. Shema Hillel. We've all taken a side. Your turn to take a side. Oh, okay, well, he's a Shema follower. Okay. And in a certain sense, it seems that he does. So we're like, oh, yeah, well, he just goes with Shammai on it. He, he leaves an exception clause, and, and that's it. We move on. But I really think this is entering the fray of not the milieu, the dialogue of Jewish identity in the first century. What this is doing is entering the fray of the glory of God. Let's, I want to tell you something about how glorious God is, and this is how I'm going to start some Matthew structures. And so with that sort of unusual introduction, let's go ahead and read... Um, these first few verses, and here again, I'll try to be as straightforward to the text as possible and just be like, here's what we see here, and I could be a little off. I mean, this is, if, if I want somebody to disagree with me, I can easily talk about divorce and remarriage in the church, and there's probably at least of the two billion people who claim identity with Christ on the earth today, I can probably offend Three quarters of them, you know, maybe even more than that. Uh, so that's that's a pretty good chunk of people. I mean, that's India. I mean, and Pakistan too. I think so. You don't want to peeve them off. When Jesus, this is Matthew 19, if you can find it, Matthew 19, and we, like I said, we just finished chapter 18 and talk about greatness in the kingdom of God, and then he gets to Matthew 19, and what happens? Let me explain this really quick. I, look, I got two words out, and I got to explain something. What's happening here is Jesus is pointing towards Jerusalem. He's going to, actually he's going to Calvary. He's going to the cross. That's the direction set by this narrative. In fact, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. This, this narrative that takes place pointing towards the Mount of Olives and eventually Calvary and the cross it starts here, and it's 
I'm leaving Galilee, I'm going to Judea. And these first two chapters, 19 and 20, is Galilee to Jerusalem. And then you get to chapter 21 and you get the triumphal entry. This, what, we're three weeks away now from Palm Sunday, is that right? We're three weeks away from Palm Sunday. Two weeks, weeks. yeah, three weeks from Easter, two weeks from Palm Sunday. And that's, that's the moment we're building towards. We're building towards Palm Sunday. He, then he enters in Jerusalem in 20 and 21, or 21, 22, and 23 are this, now I'm in Jerusalem. He's sort of entering in that Passover week. And then 24 and 25 wrap it all up with what is the end of all things and the glory of God, and when is that going to come about? So this is what we're building towards. And, and the very beginning, this, this trip begins with basically three encounters. Jesus encounters the Pharisees who want to test him, and then small children who want to come to him, and then a rich young ruler who want to earn something from him. And it all sort of heads off with the Pharisees wanting to ask him about divorce. It's interesting. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. Same word used in Matthew chapter 4 about the temptation of Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Hillel. Is Rabbi Hillel right? And he answered and said, have you not read, which I think is a great smack in the face to the Pharisees, uh, you guys, teachers of the law, memorizers of all scripture, authorities on all things religious. Have you ever read Genesis? Ring a bell, Genesis, first book, there at the head, you know, 40 some chapters. You got it? Something? Hmm? Anything? Nothing. Have you, ever, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 1, and then he jumps into Genesis 2, and he ties them together. He says, do you know why he created them male and female? Has that even struck you, Pharisees? He, created, he didn't create two dudes to hang out. He didn't create two, two people of the same gender for homosexual relations. He didn't do that. He didn't create one man and many women for polygamy. He didn't do that. He didn't create just one man and leave it at that. He didn't didn't create humans for solitariness or solidarity. He, solidarity doesn't sound like the right word. Solitariness, that's actually a word. Solitariness is a word, I looked it up. But solitude is the word I was looking for. (laughs) No, solidarity. I'm glad we had this discussion. It was solitude. Pen or something. No, I'm sorry. Um, hey, but we are paying attention. Yeah, I know. See? And you're like, solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he created in this way. And in what he was doing was, was rooting the institution of marriage in creation. And now that's actually somewhat different. I say God roots the institution of marriage in creation, and that's not exactly the same thing that a Catholic theologian would tell you. God roots each marriage in creation, and it's not dissolvable. You cannot dissolve a marriage. It's not possible. If you leave your first wife, or depending on the theologian, the first person that you ever are intimate with, then that's indissolvable. That person is, and usually it's marriage, that person is always your wife. It's not possible to bring that to an end. That would be a Catholic theologian. Whereas 
it seems to me that what he's saying is, and I, I hear again, I could be wrong. Protestants generally take this as God is rooting the institution of marriage. What he has created, this thing, whatever it is, this metaphysical or moral or, or somehow intimate reality of marriage, and that springs from the hand of God on the sixth day of creation. God creates man, he creates woman, and he has a marriage. And this is actually what's brilliant about the Gospel of John. You get to the first week of the ministry of Jesus, and it has the next day, the next day, three days later. The sixth day of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, the sixth day of the new creation, he goes to a wedding in the Cana of Galilee, and he blesses a wedding. Just like the sixth day of creation, the sixth day of the new creation, he blesses a wedding. It's fantastic. All these cool parallels right there at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Unrelated to what we're getting at today. Well, probably, but I'm just not smart enough for that. And this institution, this, this idea, this, this created order of two humans in a vowed covenant relationship with one another is rooted in what God did the first week of creation. He, he made this moral and metaphysical pact between people. And so right away, what he does is he pushes this back into the Pharisees and say, can a woman, can a man divorce a wife for any reason? Haven't you read why men and women were even created or how they were created? They were created male and female to be united in marriage. They weren't created to be disillusioned or, or dissolved or, or any sort of divided they were created to be united in marriage. And then basically what he does is he gives the conditions for marriage. What then is marriage? Quotes, quotes Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and, and we say cleave, and, and be joined to or be united with his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. It's two things. So you leave your father and mother and be united to your wife. And then you're made one flesh with your wife. That's, that's basically the conditions of what a marriage are. And what, two have, what God has joined together that no man put asunder, let's separate. And he says these, these two things make a marriage. You, you completely reorient the people in your life. You had a mother and father who were your most intimate relationship in life. And you leave that and you, you start that as sort of a new normal. You and I see it. I was paying attention. I know. See, Levi and Maggie. I was there. I was there. I was zoned in. I wasn't there actually. Though, was I was there. Yeah, I wasn't there. Sorry. I just didn't realize I wasn't there. Somebody else was waiting. Don't worry about it. You're off the hook. They create, they, you have to create a whole new normal. It's no longer a family in the same sense with your father and mother. You have a new family with your wife, with your husband, with your spouse, more generally. And secondly, you made one flesh. And this just isn't, this isn't some physical intimacy or some sexual intimacy only. Though it sort of finds its expression in that. This is, a, beyond that, it's a spiritual oneness. Which is why Paul really lays into the temple prostitutes and saying, you're, you're off creating an emotional, physical, spiritual oneness with somebody. You're wrecking your interior life. You're sinning against your own flesh in doing this. You're just, 
you can't recover from that in the next morning, you know? In fact, even chemically, there's no such thing as a one-night stand, as it were. You're producing chemicals for two, three weeks afterwards differently because of some night. He's like, this is, this is unacceptable, is Paul's sort of thrust there. And, uh, and Jesus here is, is saying similarly, you, you're building a oneness with your wife. You're expressing a oneness with your wife. And then these ten become the conditions of a marriage, of any marriage. Uh, uh, iconically, the marriage of Adam and Eve. And then he sort of expresses this in, in verse 6, kind of summarizes it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Kind of in, in conclusion, there's one thing now, not two. You can't separate for any reason. That's just, that's unheard of. Can we be divorced for any reason? No, there's not, there's not two things to move apart. There's one thing now. So no, this, this disillusion, this dissolving, it, it doesn't work. So they push back. They say to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And they want to know, well, hey, you're not off the hook yet, Jesus. Moses let us get away with it. What's going on? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, you sort of run across the... uh, of all the writing that's been done on verse on chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 9, by far has everything else beat. What is going on in verse 9? Because this is, it becomes very pragmatic then. We want to know, and it's, it's even though the question might arise from uh, sort of morbid interest or judgmentalism or just pragmatism, whatever causes this question to arise, why, who, is divorce ever permissible, is the question. And whatever is giving rise to this question, the question itself is not illegitimate. It's a, it's a, it's a sincere question that we kind of have to deal with. Is it ever guiltless or legitimate? And this verse then becomes the key to understanding Jesus' teaching on divorce. Uh, Jesus chooses to word this statement in a very particular way, And here's where we all tend to lean in and look for some answers. Right in the middle of verse 9, he puts a three-word exception clause that you don't find in verse 6. And it's something like, um, except for, and there's that that crazy word, porneia, that, that Greek term that can be used for adultery, it can be used for sort of more broad sins of intimacy. It can be used uh, in that pornographic sense that it's used for now. Whatever it is, there's an exception clause which includes this word. (laughs) And it's somehow a grounds for divorce that Jesus is allowing. Uh, And you sort of sign that same idea in Matthew 5 where he's talking about adultery in Matthew 5. Um, uh, You... If you leave your wife except for adultery, then you cause her to become an adulterer 
And if you marry a divorced woman, then you become an adulterer. It's an interesting phrasing in, in Matthew chapter 5. But here you get this exception clause in the middle of a command to be united as one. You read the same verse in Mark 10, which pretty much tracks passage by passage of this. Matthew 19, Mark 10 is really the same thing. You, the exception clause isn't there. You read the same uh, recording of, in, in Luke of similar teaching. The exception clause isn't in Luke. It's Matthew 19.9 where you find this notable except for clause in this unity of marriage. And, um, and so then you, you, when you get to teaching on marriage from the Bible, you go to Mark 10, maybe Luke, definitely Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and 1 Corinthians 7, and you really start building an idea of what's the deal with marriage, divorce, and remarriage? What's going on? Is there ever an opportunity to do this and not be guilty? Um, if he had put this exception clause at the beginning of verse 9, it really would have drawn attention to it. You know, hey, except for adultery, you know, if you put that at the beginning, except for adultery, if anyone divorces his wife and marries another, he, he commits adultery. Or except for immorality. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't highlight the exception clause. And neither does he put the exception clause at the end of the sentence. He doesn't say, if anyone divorces a wife and marries another, commits adultery, except for immorality. He doesn't do that either. And, which would have definitely had one event in mind, divorce and remarriage, which had an exception clause. He puts the exception clause smack dab in the middle of the sentence and says, if anyone divorces his wife, except for adultery and remarries, he commits adultery. And what he seems to be doing with that order is, I could be mistaken, but really using that exception clause, as it were, as a modifier of that first verb. If you divorce, except for immorality, you commit adultery. If you, if you divorce, except for porneia, you commit adultery. And get remarried. Now, it could modify both, but it comes, and it may well, in a certain sense, the reason this is important is because a lot of people argue a lot of sides. Some people say, there are times you can get divorced, but you can never get remarried. That is a biblical sin. So if you want to stay true to your relationship with Jesus, avoid sinning in this situation. You need to never get remarried if you get divorced, even if your divorce was legitimate. Now, some people take this passage and argue that. Some people take it and say, he's only referring to divorce and remarriage. So divorce on its own, not the issue. Divorce and remarriage, the issue. So divorce has a broad range of exceptions, but divorce and remarriage only has the one. Now, the reason the wording becomes important is because I think he's what he's getting after is divorce has this exception clause which then opens the door for remarriage in, in guiltless fashion. Um, that's, what I, that's where I kind of land on that. Um, and and he, then he leaves. Jesus then talks about one exception clause. Now you get to 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul starts talking about marriage and being married to an unbeliever. And he says, if the... 
if your unbelieving wife or husband consents to live with you, by all means, stay together. Because you can sanctify your spouse by your presence. But if they insist on leaving, let them go. And he even uses that word divorce right there in that context in the sense of you, if you are abandoned by your spouse, let them go. And there seems to be this guiltlessness about it. If your abandonment leaves one guiltless in divorce. By no fault of your own, by no choice of your own, you've been abandoned. The covenant of marriage has been broken. And interestingly, what this looks like is abandonment is breaking the leave and cleave condition of marriage. If you're abandoned, that person has not been united to you, has not attached themselves to you, and they've broken that what, what marriage is, isn't there. And then this adultery or sexual immorality, it, it breaks the second condition. If the condition of marriage is made one flesh, adultery breaks that. Now what's interesting is this Rabbi Shammai, Shammai, and actually much of early Judaism, if your wife committed adultery, you had to divorce them. You couldn't do otherwise. If it was known, you had to divorce them. Where Jesus certainly isn't saying that. Staying married is always, 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 staying one flesh is always, always, always the idea. But he does seem to leave this kind of space there of, if it's broken, you can be guiltless if you're not at fault. Um, tricky, certainly. But it seems to be taking issue with if your spouse breaks one of these conditions of marriage, then divorce and even remarriage then eventually becomes something you can move into in, in, a, in a guiltless way. And then, of course, in, in a void, this becomes this... Oh, man, that's a real heady theological issue. In practice, it's, you know, friends and neighbors and, you know, my buddy from Charlotte who's great and, you know, just kind of this, uh, where do we stand exactly? Is, is your lovely new wife, is this a thing? Are you an adulterer now? Are you, how, should I consider you as, uh, how does this work? Are you currently in sin because you were at fault in the divorce and now... You're in this new marriage, and she's great, and you're both believers, and it's wonderful, but what, what's going on? Are you now an adulterer? And actually, that's an interesting but um, sort of an incorrect take on this verb here. It says commits adultery in the NASB. Some of your versions might say become an adulterer. Uh, and likewise, in Matthew 5, it says you might make your wife an adulterer as opposed to make them commit adultery. Big difference there, uh, part of which because it, it is the verb. It's that, it's that um, present verb. You commit adultery, but it doesn't, in one sense, it doesn't make you an adulterer. It's not you now live in this state of constant adultery. It's, it's not saying that. You committed adultery. And in the sense that Paul uses it, if you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. Well, yes. But it's not saying, in the same sense, you are now always, always, always in a state of adultery. Well, no, you're an adulterer in as much as you committed adultery, just like, you know, we all are sinners in as much as we commit sin, but not everything you do then is a sin. Um, 
It's not like you're moving forward only into sin. Um, so there is a difference there, uh, which I think is significant. Now, um, I think the fact that Mark 10 leaves out the exception clause doesn't have to be significant or create any conflict. There could be an assumption there of a clause. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't create a conflict. It's not two different teachings. It's, it's this promotion of marriage, and if there happens to be an exception whereby marriage can be broken and dissolved or one party is guiltless, then that can be there even if Mark doesn't include that. Um, much like being baptized is a wonderful part and an act of obedience, whereas the Gospel of John doesn't mention anything about being baptized. And that doesn't mean that John somehow is in conflict with the other Gospels or the writings of Paul. It just means that it's just not there. You know? It's all right. It's not wrong because of an absence. That's, so there's, lack of evidence is just evidence of lack. You know, It's not that it's something's there that shouldn't, or something's not there that it should be. Um, so yeah, those are some... Now, there's this classic example, if you will, of uh, you're at fault in a divorce, and as a believer, and, and your, your spouse then, as a believer, part ways because of your action, for instance. And then you move in separate directions, and then you realize only later that you were at fault. That wasn't adultery, it, wasn't, it was just selfishness. You wanted out of a marriage, you got out of a marriage, you moved apart. Um, you pushed your spouse away. Now your spouse saw in this situation not an opportunity to get remarried, and so they stay single, live a celibate lifestyle, which is a gift, God says later on that can be given to you in these circumstances or in other circumstances. And, and chooses to live righteously. You, likewise, knowing you're at fault or somewhere in the back of your mind there's guilt or just happenstance, do the same. You live a celibate lifestyle as well. Years later, you're like, I don't want to live single forever. I recognize my sin. I was at fault. I desire to be married, reunited with my husband. And so you approach your husband and you begin this, or your ex-husband at that point, and begin this um, at least questioning concerning is there any possibility of um, reunification. And they say no. In fact, they're adamant about it. They will never be reunited with you because of your selfish behavior in the past who you've become, who they've become, there's no opportunity for reuniting your marriage. Now, what does that leave you? Does that leave the person who was at sinful at first, does that leave them destined, as it were, or if they want to remain sinless, they must live the rest of their life single? Or are they then somehow in a position where they could get remarried based on the terms of Scripture? Interesting question. They've, they want to reunite with the person that they sinfully separated from, and now they're in this position where they would like to, but that's, that door has been closed by the ex. Um, there's a couple of ways of approaching that, uh, several in fact, a couple of which lead to the opportunity for the person to get remarried, some of them don't. Um, and here's one that I find interesting. Jay Adams takes it this way. He says, 
if you go to it, it's a Matthew 18 issue. If you go to them and say, I'd like to at least pursue reunification because I think Jesus, that's his ideal for us. And they say, no. Well, you take somebody with you and they say, hey, you know, really, this is a matter of sin now. You, you need to at least open yourself up to this idea. And they say, no. And you take the whole church and say, hey, you know, we need to at least talk about reuniting because this is Jesus' ideal for our life. And they say, no, I won't even talk about it. Then you treat that person like an unbeliever who has abandoned you, in which case you're now in this different category. Now, interesting, I don't know. I don't know if he's right. Sounds a little like I'm trying to justify what I'm about to do. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, I've, I haven't selfishly left my wife and then wanted to reunite, and that scenario hasn't happened to me, and then the prospect of living the rest of my life single because of my past actions. I mean, that would be very difficult, I would imagine, uh, certainly. Uh, others have seen it simply as an abandonment issue, and you know, at that point it becomes abandonment. I don't know. I can also see that as just, uh, yeah, I can see that as sticky, to say the least. Uh, I'd be interested in uh, you at least thinking about that, um, because it does become relevant in your, in your counseling people and your advice you give to people. Um, need to have wise advice, especially regarding marriage, if people are approaching you. That or no advice. I wouldn't give bad advice if I could at all avoid it. Um, but in reflecting on this passage, I really think that Jesus is introducing something far greater than we can imagine just by reading a passage before us. Jesus is beginning to tell of the glory of the kingdom beyond the cross. Jesus is saying, greatness is rooted in my provision on the cross but glory is mine alone. And I'm going to share it with you simply by my grace. See, from the beginning I created you to know me and to revel in my glory, but you forfeited that because of your hardness of heart. I think when he, when he starts this previous section, we started what, Matthew uh, 13, 14, 15, no, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And what... what Matthew does right away as he traces the history of Israel and say the kingdom I'm building now is the kingdom I've always been building. But he when he gets to this last section, he hits reverse and goes all the way back to creation and say what I want you to focus on now is something larger than this kingdom I'm building even. It's me. What I want you to focus on now is me, my creative activity, my institutions that I've made, my glory from ages past that I'm showing you and sharing with you. And so he rewinds all the way back to creation and talks about an intimate relationship that's rooted in creation. And I think it has to be something of, this is the relationship I wanted with you all along. But because of your hardness of hearts, there's a rift between, this, between me and you. There's a parallel between this hard-hearted spouse and the hard-hearted man who he's talking to, these Pharisees who are testing Jesus. From the beginning, I created you to know me, but you forfeited that because of your hardness of heart. See, I've loved you with an everlasting love, but you have rejected that because you wanted to choose for yourself what was good. The fall, in essence, was legitimate grounds for divorce. God could have pushed away men because they pushed him away. The fall was legitimate grounds for Jesus to reject his creatures. 
But now, this is the ultimate pursuit of one who has gone astray. This is Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and the cross and saying, this is the model of pursuing someone who has gone astray. This is what you do when there's a rift. You die. You die for the other person. And this comes on the heels of a whole section on forgiveness. This is how you create a bridge over these gaps. I am revealing more of myself than you would ever have known if you'd not fallen into sin. Basically saying, I'm redeeming everything you've done wrong and making it even better for you than if you'd never sinned. Which is unbelievable. God speaks the universe into existence knowing full well that it is going to cost him his own life. Jesus Christ will die for our sins on a cross. And it will, in fact, be better for us than if we'd never sinned. God redeems it so much that you see more of him because of his atonement for your sin. You indulge your flesh, and it's actually God saying, I'm going to make, somehow, turn this around so it's better for you that I died and rose again on your behalf. It's better than if you even hadn't sinned. Redemption surpasses creation, which is just ludicrous that he would turn our greatest guilt into our greatest good. We know him better and we know him more and we see more of God's glory because he's revealed in a suffering Savior and not just the reigning Savior. And I think this needs to speak back into our marriages. We see more of God because of our sin. And similarly, our marriages are actually better because we're fallen. In a weird sense, we see more of our spouse because we ask them to forgive us. Because we stumble and we fall and we screw up and we annoy them and we are selfish and we are sinful and it's an opportunity for self-sacrifice and death and, and just personally pouring ourselves out for our spouse and so that we have a more intimate and broader relationship with our spouse than we would have had if we had been perfect, which is odd. And hard. Marriage is all the better because it is hard. Now, if Adam and Eve had never fallen, marriage would still be work. That's, it, would, it would still be work. To get to know, to share your life with somebody would still be hard. Even in friendships, outside of marriage, I mean, any two people trying to relate to each other is, is pretty hard work. But because of the fall, we can forgive one another and so imitate Christ, enjoying the brutality and the bliss of marriage all the more because we see more of Christ and we act more like Christ in the midst of it. The work is part of the reward. The tragedy is part of the triumph. Likewise, Jesus heads to Calvary to reign triumphant over all that has fallen to bring us into his glory. And you see that, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, this that fantastic movie about C.S. Lewis's life, Shadowlands, Shadowlands. Shadow with uh, with Hannibal Lecter. 
Um, yeah, Anthony Hopkins. It's weird seeing Aunt, uh, Hannibal Lecter as C.S. Lewis. Uh, but I guess, you know, whatever. Uh, and he, you get to this last part where, where C.S. Lewis actually marries a, a, a lovely American woman, because she's American, she would have to be lovely. Um, she goes, I don't recommend cross... Someone who married an Englishman. No, see, that's the thing. We, as a rule, never recommend marrying somebody from overseas because the paperwork is atrocious. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't worth it and whatever, but that paperwork is ridiculous and very costly. But so... <laughs> Try to sound. Yeah. <laughs> See, she has an opportunity to forgive me, and I, you're welcome. Uh, at the end of this movie, The Shadowlands, you've got his his lovely new bride, who he actually uh, very. They have two wedding dates as well. Uh, funny enough, um, and they get married before God, and they're trying to spend her last few days, weeks, or years together because she's dying of cancer. But she revives, and her cancer goes into remission. And there's this sense that at any point this is going to come back. And they're blissfully happy, but kind of sad, all in the same time. You know, sort of that adult emotional experience of fear and sadness and bliss all wrapped up into one. And he expresses this to his wife, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm overwhelmed by joy, but in it is sadness. And she's like, well, yeah, it's just... That's how this relationship, that's how every relationship works. The sadness is part of the joy, but when I'm gone, there will be joy in your sadness. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Um, and I think the same is with our marriages. The, that pain and that work and that tragedy that's part of it is part of the triumph. It's the role to get, it is, the work is the reward in a certain sense. You are like Christ, because your spouse draws it out of you. For better or worse, they draw it out of you. And I think that, that revelation of God in the cross is the only way you could ever have known that. You see the overcoming of the fall through the death of the Savior, and it speaks back into our just little pitiful microcosms of that. And we see something of Christ in that. But we would never have seen it without, without the cross. Um, and that's, I think that becomes the, that glorious overarching message that's in the midst of this fray of, hey, is divorce ever okay? He's like, there is an exception clause. Yes, there is. And here's what I want you to work towards. And he gives his life. <laughs> He's like, and this is what I want you to participate in by becoming a follower of mine. And something, some reward and some glory that far outweighs some uh, disrespect, dishonor, or disservice a spouse would ever do to us. Um, so yeah, that was my thought on that, and I think it kind of flows nicely into the rest of it, but, um, but we won't go any further.